Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. This episode is from the years 2014 through 16, when the series was called Childhood, History and Critique. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Childhood, History and Critique. I'm Pat Ryan, and this time I have a conversation with Richard Ivan Jobes, professor of history at Pacific University in the U.S. state of Oregon. Rick is a well-decorated historian of European youth and generational relations who has edited or authored three books in the past decade. In our conversation, Rick tells us a little bit about his life as a scholar, what attracted him to the history of youth and inspired his work. We discuss the concept of transnational youth at length and shared ideas about the ways that globalization is important for understanding modern youth and, in turn, the contributions young people have made to it. We recorded our conversation in July of 2016. I hope you find it as refreshing as I did. Take care. So are you right now, are you in um, Aix-en-Provence? That's correct. Well, thank you for for agreeing to come uh, onto CHC and, and, and talk about your work, Rick. I really, I really appreciate it. Let's, maybe we should just get right into it. Um, okay. Uh, you know, tell us about your um, intellectual journey. Um, you know, what, in, in broad sense, what led to your, uh, what's now become a sustained interest in, in youth, uh, nationalism and internationalism. And this, you know, developed over a number of works from, Writing the New Wave, um, to your uh, edited collection with um, David Pomfret, uh, Transnational Histories of Youth, to a forthcoming work, Backpack Ambassadors, about uh, the nationalism and internationalism in Europe. Um, so tell us about, a little bit about your journey. Well, I, you know, I got interested in youth history as a young person, <laughs> right? So when, when I was in college and... Uh, and I find this still when I teach, right? Particularly when I teach 1968, which I've done quite a fair bit of work on myself and published on. But when I was in college and got to 1968, it sort of blew my mind, right? All this, because, you know, you hadn't heard of it. You knew stuff happened in the U.S. in the 60s, but you didn't know about all the stuff in Europe. And I think there's sort of this romantic quality that you get that's sort of like, wow, you know, look at these people doing these things, Um as young people and articulating their aspirations as young people, right? Um, and, of course, the the whole Paris in 68 and Prague and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of is what got me initially interested in it. And then the more I learned about it, the more you realized how, how few people were looking at it. Right. So so I ended up, I went to graduate school and I wasn't sure I was going to work on youth in graduate school. Um, but I ended up quite fortunately at Rutgers University 
which is where John Gillis uh, was, mm-hmm. now retired. And, and there I worked with him and Bonnie Smith and Joan Scott. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, tremendous, you know, powerhouses of intellect. And they were all very influential on me and very involved in my intellectual development. And so when I was at Rutgers and, and um, you know, they were all really supportive as well of sort of probing youth as a historical phenomenon. Both, you know, Joan, of course, was very interested in sort of the discursive aspects of power and that sort of stuff. And John was more driven by the more traditional social and cultural aspects. Right. And Bonnie was very interested in, you know, the gender and the, and, and the dynamics of the way youth and the adults sort of interacted. And so in graduate school, I just sort of glommed onto that as sort of my niche, kind of, mm-hmm. you know, and just started thinking about it and, and working towards it in that way. Um, I think that's somewhat of a familiar story, you know, uh, an interest coming out of specific relationships uh, with uh, mentors in graduate school and also then just struck by the political significance of youth in the 20th century um, and some of the dramatic stories. There's a t- tell. I want to get to your forthcoming book a little later, but let, maybe we could start with um, with the concept of trans national youth and then there's a there's the collection but there's also just the concept of the uh, uh or the phrase transnational youth and how does um this concept maybe contribute to older discussions of imperialism colonialism globalizations or or other things that that i'm not highlighting in in my in my questions it's historical significance or historiographic significance well, you know, when when we think about it, we, I, mean, I think we there's a lot of built-in assumptions, right? So I think we all understand that what we think of as youth is, is of course, historically constructed. And what we think of youth in the modern era, it developed, you know, as a social body and as a cultural concept transnationally. Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't isolated uh, within one particular nation state, uh, yeah. but instead was primarily Western initially, but you know what's happening in North America, what's happening in Europe, you know, even all the discussions about the you know the psychological concepts of adolescence, right? Um, that was a transnational development, and, and and but and so there's these ways in which we sort of assume the transnationality of youth, but but we haven't probed it a whole lot. Is and, by this do you mean we we as historians we tend to be trained in terms of the history of nation states and there's a disruption there between this concept and interest in youth and that that housing that we often put around our work yeah absolutely right so but i mean this is all breaking apart mm-hmm. um, in various ways and and certainly imperial history is the the, the significant work that's been done in imperial history in the last 15 to 20 years has played a huge part in that and so th- this came about because I was starting, the, I was deep into the research for my book that's coming out in the spring, Backpack Ambassadors, yeah. and was starting to formulate chapters and really knew that I needed to educate myself about transnational history as a methodology. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I was hoping to find something on, you know, youth and transnational history. 
mm-hmm. and I and I wasn't finding anything. And so I was, I'm friends with David Pomfret, and I emailed him, and I said I knew because of his what he was working on, which has just come out as his monograph, Youth and Empire, the transcolonial childhood and what is it in British and French Southeast Asia, something like that. Youth have and Empire, believe, transcolonial childhood in British and French Asia. All right, there you go. Yeah, so I knew he was grappling with similar things. And so I emailed him and I said, you know, David, I'm looking for something about transnational history and youth. Um, You know, have you you come across anything? So he responded that he hadn't, not really. And so then, you know, like a month or so later, continued looking. And then I sort of emailed him back and I said, so, well, we're both thinking about this stuff. We both need to grapple with it. We both need to develop our thinking why don't we do something? And uh, and he was amenable to it. And so so the the edited collection sort of grew out of, and I think this is not uncommon either, mm-hmm. uh, our own to service our own needs for our monographs that we were working on. Yeah, and it's part of building. It's part of of uh, the networks that we have. Yeah, which sure. are which are, are aren't just uh, ancillary to our scholarship, but are part of the gut. Of it, it's certainly it's certainly why I'm doing CHC, right? Because the ideas can't be separated, right, from the relationships that we have so, with each other. So to go back then to the transnationality of youth, is you know I think we're missing something pretty huge about the history of youth as an age category as well as a social experience if we don't deal with its profound transnationality. Mm-hmm. And you know something in the Something that comes through in the collection and, and, you know, so many of these ideas were not, they're only developed out of doing the project. That's right. right? Um, they, they didn't precede it. Um, is, is the ways in which the young themselves in the 20th century particularly understood themselves as being a part of youth as itself being transnational? Mm-hmm. Like they, and, and when you think about it now, I mean, that's, that's the same now, right? Young people don't see themselves as a social body of youth contained within a nation state. I mean, whether you think about popular culture or gaming or, or political activism, right? Yeah. So just, just, just by the sort of self-knowledge of identifying with being youth was itself a transnational act, even if the young people weren't necessarily um, revolutionaries, revolutionaries, or moving around, uh, crossing borders themselves. So some of the things in these essays is, is you know, a lot, several of them are about mobilities and actual, you know, movement, uh, whether it's immigration, um, you know, imperial circulation, travel, that sort of stuff. But others are about um, not necessarily the young people themselves moving, being sort of isolated, or immobile. And yet they are engaging with uh, youth culture uh, transnationally. Uh, on a first chapter about um, in the Soviet Union, youth culture sort of traveling through these narrow conduits across the Iron Curtain in this cultural transfer process. Or Sayaka Chitani's article about uh, Japanese rural youth engaging, you know, with the 4-H because they're, they, you know, they're, and refashioning it for themselves, but thinking of themselves as participating in a larger, you know, process. 
I can't help but think as I'm listening to you to talk about uh, a parallel that in in some ways if you took the word youth in what you've just uh, packaged for us and replaced the word youth with class, you would have a a very old conversation or a, that emerges out of the 19th century, which is class consciousness is connected to internationalism. Yes. Uh, you, you know, and that tension between nationalism, class consciousness, and internationalism, which is very rife today, and you only have to think yeah. as far as Brexit. Yeah. In terms yeah. of these these connections. Yeah. yeah. But I, w- I, w- I would differentiate that a little bit, because class consciousness we assume as being overtly political. Mm-hmm. Whereas... Uh, while certainly there are political dimensions within identifying with youth, and we see that in some in Andrew Avaska's chapter, for example, quite extensively. Um, it, in many ways, for young people, it's not it's not necessarily uh, a political, but rather an age category that maybe they're participating in just you know through pop culture. Yeah. Maybe one of the I mean, if anything, that's probably um, a pretty profoundly important one um, in that way. Um, so, yeah, so we, so we wanted to sort of think about how youth is transnational mm-hmm. and to probe that and poke at it and develop it. Um, so in one sense, we're, we're, we're trying to talk to historians of childhood and youth about the transnationality of youth. But we also wanted to try to think about, we want to talk about, talk to transnational historians. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, youth is transnational uh, among historians of youth and childhood is being explored uh, in particular parameters for, for youth, especially the student activism of the 60s. There's been, you know, quite a lot going on in the last decade looking at that as a transnational phenomenon. But transnational historians themselves, I mean, you would think, uh, you know, there wasn't, there was no, like, young people in the world. Like, they really haven't probed it and thought about it. And so the book ended up being in a transnational history series rather than a youth history series. And the series editors, Ron Amitter and Akira Irie, were like terribly excited, you know, when, when they got it and, and very pleased with the quality of it. In fact, they, they convinced Paul Grave to, um, to let us have a greater word count per chapter because they just, they, they thought the, the quality of the, of the work itself merited, um, you know, a little bit greater density than what Paul Grave usually uh, allowed. Um, so, so I think there's a lot that historians of youth have to say to and contribute to the history of, of or, or rather to transnational history and for transnational historians. Thinking about, you know, we, you and I, and the people maybe who are going to listen to this, are quite accustomed to using age as an analytic category. Right, comparable to race, class, or gender, um, but but outside of our circle, you know, we're still trying to sort of convince others that that this is really important and huge, right? Yeah. I mean, to all such questions. A, yeah, right, to all questions. Absolutely, because kids are everywhere, and one of the most universal features of human <laughs> beings is that they grow up and grow old. Right, right, aging, you at, know, at, at least as much as gender. Which right. sex is fundamental and everywhere and you can't escape it, so it's always in play. Gender is always in play. 
And it's the same thing about the life cycle. Exactly, exactly. So, so in in part, we're 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 trying to use this to to speak to you know, non historians uh, of youth and childhood, but at the same time, then too, right? Because it it was born out of our own David and our own interests in in moving our the history of childhood and youth a little bit further in that direction, and 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 hopefully there'll be this will help other people, you know, think about it and uh, deal with it and work with it and that sort of stuff. Another thing that I think of, and I just want, this is not much of a question, but it's, this is uh, just a, a thought just to help people. Make, give, I just want to open a door for you to give different examples. And I'm thinking of one that is, um, it's political, but it's also part of popular culture. And it's a, it's a personal, it's a personal story. I read an article. I was at the, uh, Horrible Histories Conference, the launch of the Children's History Society in London, uh, uh, just last month. And uh, I stepped out, as, as people do, just kind of, you need a break from the conference. And I had just gotten a, an email from a friend, uh, Jonas uh, Corsibo, uh, who is a historian in, uh, of childhood and youth and education in uh, Malmö, Sweden. And he wrote a book a number of years ago with a friend that he grew up with on punk culture in Sweden. Uh-huh. And right. this was an English article that I could, you know, get. And he said, I know you've been waiting for this. And so I read it. I just sat in the sun there uh, in a rare sunny afternoon in London and, and read this article. And it starts out with a, a concept. He said, you know, he says, you know, I'm from Norshipping and Norshipping, Sweden is an industrial town that goes through a Rust Belt problem. In yeah. the 1970s, as and as many places in the world did, and uh, there's a particular social democratic response to that problem in Sweden, and but we were on the periphery. The core was London and New York, and what was happening that we cared about was rock and roll. Yeah. Right. Now I, well, grew up so, in, you know, that's part of my interest in youth it, history too. Exactly. Yeah. So I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and I was on the periphery too. And the center was London and New York. Oh, yeah. And so here we are uh, growing up, you know, a long way apart in many ways. But in terms of of, of uh, the reference points of his article, in terms of the bands and the music and the, and the analysis that he was going through, in terms of the specific practices and right. the representation, I knew that all. I knew all right. of that. That wasn't foreign at all. Right. So I'm glad, I'm glad you said that because so one of the things we really wanted to also emphasize in this collection was practice. Yeah. That is that that what was defining young people's youthfulness, right? Yeah. Is is their practice of what they were doing and thinking and and identifying, right? David Pomfret was the keynote speaker at the uh, conference that I was just at in London that launched the Children's uh, History Society. Um this is just a fragment quote from his uh, talk, which I think is well represented in the collection that you edited. And mm-hmm. a, I think it runs, it's a theme that runs through a lot of the, a lot of the chapters and in your introductory uh, uh, chapter. And that is um, this claim, childhood functions as a space where empires can be collapsed. And I thought about that, and that's very hopeful and progressive, and there's a a sense of, uh, of open-endedness than in terms of childhood, in terms of the, 
the transitions of childhood, transnationalism of childhood and the circulations that are possible. But I also thought of the other side of that, which is that childhood also can be a the space where people imagined imagined that they're able to construct empires. So it's all of the residential school projects. It's school oh, in yeah. general. So there's oh. obviously a, a, a tension between uh, between those two kinds of claims or outlooks. I just want you to speak to that in terms of transnational youth, in terms of liberty and freedom, and youth also as a power structure, right? Um, yeah. Well, you know, we all know that these age categories are riddled with paradox, of course, right? Uh, you know, youth as the messianic future and, and, and youth as, you know, the demonic, you know, uh, destroyers of civilization, you know, yeah. all hell is breaking loose with young people today sort of thing, right? So, so I think the answer is, you know, they're of course, they're of course both right, right? But, but there's a way in which sometimes, um, the power of the transnationality of youth sometimes isn't even, it has to be recognized. So, so in, in our collection, one of the last essays by Fabio Lanza, which is about 1989 at Tiananmen Square. Mm-hmm. And, and he talks about this, that, that the protesters there, the young, they were young, but they were not, they were not initially in any way sort of thinking of themselves as youth, right? They adopted that in the process of the ongoing process, protest. And he argues rather persuasively, I think, they adopted it as a strategic tactic, particularly to aspire to the global media, which wanted to frame it, you know, in that sort of 1968 sort of thing. And, yeah. you know, he, and so, and, and so in his essay, which that there's this very smart turn where he starts talking about the ways in which they recognized the protesters at Tiananmen recognized the power that that discourse would give them on a global stage. Yeah. Right. Not necessarily within China, but that, but there was like this aha moment, you know, yeah. that, that, that the malleableness and the effectiveness yet powerful, uh, way in which youth can be embraced and votes and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So as far as, so, so what I would say back to David, if, if he were joining us <laughs> and maybe next time I see him, I'll mention this. You know, I think the where empires can be collapsed, I, I think maybe we need to think about collapsed in another way as well, right? That is that the the totality of imperialism itself can be enfolded within, collapsed within, right? Embodied by childhood, right? right? Yeah. Simply that empires fall apart, as a, the the collapsibility of them falling apart, but rather they can be consumed by within. And, and, and childhood itself, children and youth can themselves be, you know, the, the, the fruition. I don't, the, uh, I'm not coming up with the good words here. Yeah. Do you understand what I'm saying? I, well, I, I, or another way to say it is that, um, there's a whole world of analysis, uh, that can be done around childhood and youth when it, be, when it comes to political questions. Yeah, yeah, but not like political questions. But yes, yeah. and and it, it, no matter how big the structures are, or how small they are, yeah, that 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 youth and ch- children aren't just in the familiar places, and and particularly the idea of childhood and youth, 
right. aren't only in the familiar places that it's not bottled. Yeah. Right. Yeah, not at all. But this is so to go back to the collection again. I, I, this is something that I think is also great is that the the essays, while they're certainly not globally comprehensive, but you know we have scholars from I think eight countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, we you know North America, South America, Asia, Africa, Europe. You know the the content of the study, and a lot of it is about this this interaction between different localized regions uh, around the world with ideas of youth and young people which are coming from some other localized region around the world, right? Um, and so and so there's this this way in which you know the the it's not it, it, yeah interaction I think is a better word than you know it's not a conflict necessarily not coming into conflict with each other. But particularly, you know, the Western hegemonic notion of youth interacting with, you know, other groups. So you have African-Americans interacting with Africans in Andrew Vasquez's, you know, chapter in Dar es Salaam. Mm-hmm. All political activists, it's all very political, but in this social dynamic um, in, in Dar. Um, so there's just a lot of interesting dimensions, I think, still yet to be explored even. Before we go, I want you to talk, talk a little bit about Backpack Ambassadors, about the forthcoming book, about what you, you know, what your co- contribution is. Maybe just describe the book a little bit, and then some of your main ideas or main arguments, and and uh, what what we can expect from it. It's not out yet. It comes out, if I'm right, next year. But uh, yeah, let's talk about that. So it's called Backpack Ambassadors: How Youth Travel Integrated Europe, and it comes out with Chicago in the spring. We'll see. They're saying April. Okay. Um, and um, it's about, you know, backpacking, your railing, interrailing is a big part of it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we joked in graduate school and, you know, that we were all researching our own biographies, but, you know, sort of in a displaced fashion. And so I was, a, I, I decided to get my PhD, in fact, uh, to go to graduate school the summer I was uh, 1990 backpacking around Europe. I was like, Man, I love this. This is great. I was already a history major. My parents wanted me to go to law school, and I was like, I, you know, I wasn't keen on law school. Um, and so I thought, this this is it. You know, I'll, I'll just get my Ph.D., and it'll enable me to come back here to work. And that's, in fact, what, what has happened. So um, what I wanted to look at is how the transnational mobility of young people, particularly in Western Europe, after the war, the book's roughly 1945-1992, contributed to European integration. And so I should also distinguish this from the European Union. So it's not a history of the European Union, though there's European Union stuff and all its antecedents in there, certainly. But rather, I wanted to use youth travel as a case study to think about the social and cultural integration of Europe, that it's not just a political and economic thing, which is the EU component, but rather, you know, there are people themselves in their behaviors and activities within Europe um, were integrating to greater and greater degrees. And I, it occurred to me that youth travel might be a tremendous way to look at this, and it turned out that it, it was. It's extraordinary. 
Um, and so, you know, so you, you have, for example, after, well, this, the chap, my contribution to transnational histories of youth is corresponds to about half of my first chapter of the book, which is about youth hostels and how hosteling changed pretty significantly right after the Second World War from what it had been prior to the Second World War and became a very internationalist organization. You know, the whole intent was to push young people to interact with each other and to travel abroad. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I, I published an article in the AHR a few years ago about 1968 and all the travel between the youth protest sites. Um, and, and that was extensive as well. And then France and Germany, the second chapter talks about France and Germany in particular set up a host of programs for their young people to interact and travel together. And this starts even immediately after the war uh, in the French occupation zone of Germany, um, where they start bringing uh, French children and French youth into Germany to interact with German youth in, in camps and that sort of stuff. And then in 1963, they, they established, it's very famous in France and, and Germany, but not really elsewhere, the Franco-German Youth Office, mm. a massive organization that still exists that coordinates and subsidizes youth activities that are binational, bilateral. And it's involved millions of young French and Germans and still exists today. Um, the Eurail Pass and the Interrail Pass, which is the European version of the Eurail um, leads to a tremendous amount of backpacking, the classic backpacking that we think of, which really peaks in the 70s. Yeah. And I talk about Amsterdam in there quite a bit, um, how it became sort of a center of backpacker activity around, around 1970. And, of course, there's lots of Americans, and Canadians for that matter, I'll have you know, uh, who are over there. The Canadians want to insist on that, right, particularly that they're not American with their Canadian flags on their, their backpack, right, just to be clear. Um <laughs> and uh, and so by 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 the early 1970s, you have a million American uh, young people annually yeah. traveling around Europe, Western Europe in particular. And so the Cold War really shapes it, right? So it really becomes Western Europe. And the more and more that they travel, their their the dense network of their circularity begins to expand outward and starts to incorporate Spain. So you mentioned earlier about how you're in Oklahoma and you're thinking London is the center of the world. Yeah. Well, that was true in Spain in the 70s too, right? So in Spain, when young people, young backpackers start coming into Spain, they're bringing, this is still Francoist, the early 70s, they're bringing in that youth culture too. And the music, so the, so music, my fifth chapter is really about music and how it travels with young people and expands into the Eastern Bloc and into North Africa. And so as they're, where they're going and the density of their travels expand, sort of that circularity keeps growing sort of the process of integration. And so it's really, that's what it's about. Uh, it's about all of that and gender and immigration too, right? So the young backpacker is often conceptualized uh, positively in a contrast to the immigrant. Yeah. So you see that, uh, that tension uh, exists throughout as well, Um, racial, and that's, of course, bound up with with racial issues and that sort of stuff, too. So um, I'm very excited about it. it. It's fun, I think. Um, They, Chicago really thinks uh, that it could be used in the classroom. It was tried to write it so that undergraduates could maybe read this and 
at once learn the history. So they learn the history of Europe, hopefully in a survey quality from 45 to 92, the Cold War, Reconstruction, 68, um, European integration. So all those things are built in there uh, and the ways in which youth mobility is, you know, enabling those or or causing problems or... Uh, there are so many courses on childhood and youth now being offered to undergraduates around the world. Uh, yeah. So you, this is something also that uh, you've, right. you've written it so that it can interact with that audience and not, not yeah. just I the scholarly so. monitor. I hope so. I mean, it is. So it, that's it, a tough audience. To but it's also, it, it's, and, um, you know, the, the, the readers that, that, that the press has sent it to thought so. Right. Um, so we'll see. I hope so. Yeah. You know, we, I, it can be, as you know, right, you, you, the amount of, I mean, it's terrifying and chilling to think about the number of hours we put into, you know, uh, these, these things, articles and books. And, and, and then when you really think about how large your audience is, you know, like. You almost have to detach yourself from that. Well, you have to, because you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, wait a minute. Did I just, did I, did I do these years of work so that, you know, a couple hundred people in the world, um, uh, We'll, we'll, we'll use it. We'll read it. Um, but you know, so, you know, part of it's my own sort of need to try to reach, reach more people a little bit. Okay. Well, congratulations, Rick. That's exciting. Look forward. It to is excited about it. I'm, 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 you know, you, when I finished my, my first book, which had been my dissertation, you know, I was done. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay. <sighs> but this one, I'm still, you know, I'm still keen and I have to actually, I have to rewrite the conclusion now after Brexit. So I, I, I'm lucky. I'm lucky because I get the copy edit at the end of this month. So I'll have an opportunity. I got to, I've got to now revise the conclusion after the Brexit vote, um, which is quite interesting again, because if you, if you read a lot about it, well, the, the young people voted overwhelmingly to stay. Right. Exactly. And that's been true. It's interesting that, that, that the, the attitude of the young towards integration, has consistently, for decades, always been higher than older people. So what, what's interesting there, of course, is that, well, the people who were young in the 60s are, are, are old now. So, so it's interesting the way that positive attitude towards a, a general Europeanism has stuck with the age, the social body, yeah, but not necessarily the individuals. You know, so, hey, Rick, I really appreciate uh, this conversation, your time today. Yeah, thank you for, uh, you know, engaging me. Oh, it's been a lot of fun for me. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.